0: good morning TCC hope you're having a wonderful morning today if you have your Bibles go ahead and turn to Exodus we're continuing in our series on just a bite-sized chunk of the book of Exodus and today we're going to begin in Exodus 15 and as we begin let's just unite our hearts together in prayer to God let's pray father Today we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is your word, and as we do, let us not be naive to the fact that our struggle today is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So then may we ever be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people, and as I speak, May you give me the words to fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Amen. You know that moment when you pull the car into the driveway after a long day, though it was sunny when you started this drive, it's now beginning to pour down rain. So you get out and then you cover your head and you run as fast as you can inside. And that moment, Rain is an irritant. It's not something you like. But then there are those other summertime moments when you're pleasantly surprised to find yourself outside during a brief shower. So refreshing just to stand or dance in that type of rain. I feel like these last four months have been full of times where I yearn for my soul to be soaked in the cool blessings of the love of God. A couple of songs come to mind here. Listen to the lyrics. See how they land on you. In the late 90s, we all sing a worship song with the lyrics, send your rain, O Lord, send your rain, O Lord, send your rain and bring your kingdom. Soften our hearts and pour out your spirit. Fill us anew, let your rain come. And in 1821, the hymn, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, was penned. It contained these words referring to the hope to be found in Jesus, the Messiah. He shall come down like showers upon the fruitful earth. Love, joy, and hope like flowers spring in his path to birth. And you might be thinking, I want love and joy and hope in Jesus. You need to be energized and reinvigorated and fortified and restored and strengthened now more than ever. How can you dance in the refreshing rain of Jesus today? I'm thankful that God has always provided refreshment for his people. In the book of Exodus, the major theme of the first 17 chapters is that God is present to deliver and renew his people. As you glance down the corridors of the rest of scripture, you'll see God delivering, renewing with his presence, and it's best seen in the coming of our savior, Jesus Christ. So what we see in 720 pixels in the Old Testament is an indicator of what will become clear and quad HD in the person and work of Jesus. So in today's text, in Exodus 15, We can begin to see together how we can get at this question today. How can you be refreshed by the gentle reign of Jesus? And where we pick up the story in Exodus is just after the crossing of the Red Sea. God's chosen people are on a long journey south from Egypt to Mount Sinai. In this part of the journey, they encounter three major problems that allow us to see how you can be refreshed today by the gentle reign of Jesus. So let's start by looking in your Bible at Exodus chapter 15, this first section from verses 22 to 27. I just want to read this together and talk about it. So beginning in verse 22, then let Moses then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went there for three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. So I want to pause here to note the severity of the situation. Today in your life, you're no stranger to hurt or abuse or despair, anxiety, and other trials because of the brokenness of this world. This has always been the lot of God's people. But here in Exodus, over a million of God's covenant people are traveling through the desert and the water has run out. It's panic time. Verse 23 says, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah. That word means bitter in Hebrew. So they named the place after this bitter water, undrinkable. Verse 24 says, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. Just like that, God shows up and bitter yields to sweet. God refreshes his people. uh, But he's not done. For God has created us all in two parts, the material self, that will drive head first into these sweet springs, but also the immaterial, spiritual self, a heart. So here he beautifully calls for a heart-centered obedience that will lead to the flourishing of the whole person. Look at the end of 25. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptian. For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now note, the components of God's interaction here. He's present at their low point to offer life-giving refreshment. And then he declares in four overlapping ways how they will find future satisfaction. They'll listen to the voice of the Lord, do what is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. In summation, the way to refreshment is to listen to the voice of of God. I recently taught my kindergartner how to ride his bike and there's a lot of ways to do it, but the way we did it was the no training wheels method and so with this you put him on the bike on an incline and then you steady the bike and then you just kind of let it go and the momentum carries him and he learns to balance and as he goes he has to look where he's going and he has to keep pedaling. If you look down, you fall. If you stop pedaling, you stall. We were having some challenges there. So I looked back at some video that I took and I heard my voice over and over saying the same thing. Look straight ahead, keep pedaling. Look straight ahead, keep pedaling. Look ahead, keep pedaling. I said it so much I was getting on my own nerves. Look straight ahead, keep pedaling. But here's the thing. It wasn't until my son listened to my voice that he actually succeeded. Uh, Only then did he feel the Russian thrill of riding the bike by himself. And such are the ways of our God. It's, It's only by listening to his voice and keeping his commandments that we will dance in the refreshing, gentle rain of Jesus. Now, as we look further into the story of redemption, we see God reiterate this through the law to the monarchs, through the prophets, And as we get to the New Testament, we find that Jesus grasped this as a foundational principle of discipleship. On the night of his arrest and before the climax of all salvation history, we hear Jesus lovingly sharing these words to his followers. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth. In other words, if you truly treasure Christ, you will keep his teachings and you'll find yourself refreshed by the cool drops of the spirit. Now you might say, it sounds great. I'm in. How do I get started? Uh, well, notice here that commandment-keeping flows from loving God, from finding your satisfaction in him. John Piper says so well here, and I quote, It's enjoying Jesus because he is infinitely enjoyable. It's being satisfied with all that he is because he is infinitely satisfying. It's the reflex of the awakened newborn human soul to all that is true and good and beautiful, embodied in Jesus. In short, loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things. It's a matter of delighting in an excellent savior. Jesus says, doing excellent things, keeping my word, is the result of delighting in the excellent Savior. So your obedience is motivated by your love for him. And as you obey him, you are refreshed by him. You dance in the rain with him. Now, how do we cultivate this loving, obedient heart that will be refreshed by Jesus? Here's a couple of brief suggestions. First, for the Israelites in the wilderness, they were to listen to God's word, his voice. For us, we have the Bible. Are you turning there regularly for refreshment while you're stuck here at home in quarantine? Is, is this where uh, a place where you can see the beauty of Jesus that makes you want to obey him? Author Don Whitney suggests this include some meditation on scripture along with your daily reading. It's better to read less if necessary, and yet as the result of meditation, remember something, than to read more and remember nothing. Here's another suggestion. In Exodus 15, at the bitter springs of Mara, God's people were also reminded of Yahweh's delivering acts in Egypt. He said, look back and remember this. I would just encourage you this week to pick one person to share your testimony with. Share how Jesus delivered you. Tell of your awakening to his goodness. See if vocalizing his salvific acts to someone else doesn't help you to be energized by him. In the end, it's clear that if we wish to be refreshed by the gentle reign of Jesus, we must strive to keep his commandments. Now turn back to Exodus. And we see another way we can be refreshed by the gentle reign of Jesus. Now, chapter 16 is rather long, so I just want to summarize it for you and then read a portion of it. As the Hebrews continue on their journey through the wilderness, they find no food. So the first problem was they ran out of water, now they have no food. Their current struggle is a desperate hunger. After the people complained to Moses and Aaron, God responds, saying in verse 4 of chapter 16, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. So you can see clearly a picture of God sprinkling his people with his loving blessing of raining bread. As we continue, God says, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in it will be twice as much as they gather daily so God said I'm going to give you manna thin bread in the morning and they'll be quail for supper Uh, but pay attention to the details here on the sixth day God wants a double gathering so that on the seventh day people can rest they can have a Sabbath a day of solemnity if you read on down in verse 27 you'll see that the people struggle to find rest in God on the Sabbath look at verse 27 so on the seventh day some of the people went out to gather but they found none And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, it's helpful to remember that this incident happened before God had given his people laws regarding the Sabbath. However, God had established the principle of rest at creation, and he reminds people of it again here. Uh, but the question is why? Why is God intent on his people learning Sabbath rhythms? Well, one answer is purely practical, right? The rest, if you have rest on one day, it gets your batteries charged for six more days. But the lesson here is much deeper than that. God is showing you that if you want to experience his true blessings of refreshment, you must rest in him. And by rest, I mean, give him your utter trust. And the other day I was flipping through my yellow copy of the autobi- autobiography of George Mueller, and I was just struck anew. Now uh, here's a guy, who knows how to rest in God. I wouldn't recommend all his methods, but his mindset is so stout. Uh, George Mueller, along with being a founder of the Plymouth Brethren movement, uh, directed an orphanage in Bristol, England, in the mid 1800s. He was an evangelist. He cared for over 10,000 orphans. He started 117 schools. He wasn't one for raising support, so his ministry was often on the brink of financial ruin. And in his book, he tells one story of how he desperately needed food for the orphans and he was once again out of money. And so a lady brought him a donation, but Mueller knew that she was in bad debt herself. So he actually declined her money that would have fed orphans on that day. You might think, why would he do that? Well, he was he didn't want her to go into further debt, he wanted her to pay off the debt. He was able. To rest in Jesus as enough. He trusted God not long after that. At the same time, another man was feeling led by God to bring Mueller funds immediately, and it was enough to feed the children. What an example of trust. We too must learn what it means to rest, trusting in God's deliverance. Now later in Exodus, in God's covenant with Moses, the Sabbath will function as a sign of God's pledge, sign of the covenant. In Leviticus 25, we learn of the year of Jubilee, which is a whole year, a time of rest and joy. And later, as we move forward in the larger biblical picture, Jesus comes, and you might say he absorbs the Sabbath. He goes around and he says things like, The Sabbath was made for man, not the man for Sabbath. And he, and that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He deliberately heals a hurting girl against the wishes of the authorities on the Sabbath. In both Colossians 2 and Hebrews 4, we see that the Sabbath was to point God's people to Christ and was fulfilled in Jesus. In short, this episode here in Exodus 16 points forward to the Messiah, who through his death and resurrection, ushers in a time of rest in him. Jesus is the one worthy of our trust. He's able to handle our cares and our troubles. He will eventually usher in God's final Sabbath rest when God's people will rest from all of our temporal labors and pains and anxieties. Now we might ask, what types of things keep us from resting in Christ? author Tim Chester picks up on the natural contrast between rest and busyness, and he lists six lies that have captured our culture. See if one of them might describe you. First lie, you're busy because you need to prove yourself, or you stay so busy because of other people's expectation, or you're busy because otherwise things get out of control, or You're busy because you prefer being under pressure, or you're so busy because you must have more money, or you're so busy because I want to make the most out of life. Australian pastor Jimmy Young contrasts such busyness that consumes your life with a true rest in Christ because there's underlying issues to a lot of our busyness that reveal we truly aren't trusting While Israel kept the Sabbath as a means to being right with God, Christians can trust in Jesus for their rest. They can rest in the knowledge that he has satisfied every need that we'll ever have. We can rest because we are accepted by God. We don't need to prove ourselves. We can rest because Jesus has met God's expectations for us. We can rest because Jesus is in full control. We can rest because Jesus is our safe refuge in all circumstances. We can rest because through Jesus, God has gifted us everything we need. We can rest because through Jesus, we can have life and life to the full. Every emotion and urging that fuels our over has been dealt with on the cross and the resurrection through Jesus. Every fear that we have about ourselves before God has been matched by Jesus. God now invites us to stop the busyness, to cease, to rest, to end and to draw closer to him and be filled with satisfaction and contentment. Today, my friend, I hope you let the story in Exodus nudge you towards Sabbath and Jesus to experience his refreshing gentle rain in your own life now as we continue to ask this question how can you be refreshed today by the gentle rain of Jesus let's look now in Exodus 17 let's read the first six verses of Exodus 17 together Now, all the congregation of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So here's a familiar problem. It rears its head again. There's nothing to drink. There's no water. Do you ever feel like some of your deepest challenges just keep circling back? That's how life works sometimes, isn't it? Let's see how the people respond to this in verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there. They were thirsty and they wanted water and the people grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried for the Lord what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now this is interesting. Moses notes that people's anger is so intense that they might kill him with the equivalent of the death penalty. They have judged him and by proxy his God and found them both wanting. How's God going to react to this? Well, read on in verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand, the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So let's understand what's going on here. Moses is to gather up some of the elders. These people were the judges of Israel. Then he was to take the very staff that he struck the Nile with and used in plagues against Egypt now this was the rod of judgment. He used to take that with him along with the elders of judgment. It sounds like God has heard the grumbling of his people, and he's now ready to dish out some severe punishment, a righteous beatdown, a judgment. Now if you could have been there, you would have been trembling with fear. But then in the text, we have a wild, unexpected plot twist. Look what God says in verse six. Behold, stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. So it seems like this rock is a place where God's people are going to be punished for the grumbling. And then God says, you shall strike. But what's he supposed to strike? You shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people, the people will drink. And so Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. Moses is to dish out judgment for the people's sin on the rock. Not the people, but on the rock, the very rock where God dwells. Yahweh himself is being struck so that his children can have the refreshing water spew all over them. And later in Psalms 78, The author looks back at this passage and he summarizes simply by saying, the people remembered that God was the rock. Now, earlier parts of our story, beckon you to dance in the rain of Christ's sweet commands and in the refreshment of his Sabbath rest, surely here is an invitation to experience his grand substitution. Now, here's one way to think about the biblical idea of substitution. Think about the concept of identity theft. I hate this part of our modern life. This week at my house, we're dealing with some fraud on our credit card. Uh, you know how it happens. First, there's an online charge to a company you've never really heard of. And there's a small $1 charge from Sam's Club, also something you didn't do. And so begins the tedium of dealing with a credit card company. Uh, but what if the reverse happened? What if, Instead of a credit card company called me, instead of me reaching out to them, what if they called me and instead of calling to report fraud, they called me and they said, oh, Mr. Williams, we would like to report some unauthorized payments to your account. Someone other than yourself has made a payment, not for one dollar, but for your entire balance. As if someone would enter into my business between me and Chase Visa and substitute my debt for their own currency. They took my place and they got me off the hook. This is what God is showing you in the Exodus story today. It's a glimpse of what is to come with the arrival of the Messiah. Matthew writes of Christ in Matthew 20, 28, the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul writes of Jesus in Colossians 2 14 that Jesus canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Martin Luther sums this up in this fashion I quote, Our most merciful Father sent his only Son into the world and laid upon him. The sins of all men, saying to Jesus, Be thou Peter, that denier. Be thou Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. Be thou David, that adulterer, that sinner, which did eat the apple in paradise. Be thou that thief, which hanged upon the cross. Briefly, be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men, See therefore that thou pay and satisfy for them. Here comes the law and saith, I find him a sinner, therefore let him die upon the cross, and so he setteth upon him and he killeth him. By this means the whole world is purged and cleansed from all the sin. Luther will use a lot of outdated language and these and thous, but hopefully you get his point. Elsewhere, Luther counsels all of us when he writes, we should learn to know Christ and him crucified, learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you're my righteousness. I am your sin. You've taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You became what you were not so that I might become what I was not. Now let's flash back to Exodus in your Bibles. For a moment to see how this imagery exudes spiritual life and refreshment from God. As Moses strikes the rock where God substitutes himself to take the punishment for our sin, water springs forth. Life and energy and invigoration all flowing from God himself. In the New Testament Jesus picks up on this flowing water imagery and John four thirteen, we read Jesus responding to the woman at the well, and he said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Hopefully you can see the same imagery there. It's through Jesus alone as your substitute that God will refresh you. His work brings God's spirit. Such that in John seven thirty seven Jesus said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. So today, my prayer is that you use Exodus to reflect on Jesus as your substitute to experience his refreshing, gentle rain in your life. At the beginning of our time today, we ask this question, how can you be refreshed by the gentle rain of Jesus? In this narrative from Exodus 15, through 17, we can take away three ways to be rejuvenated in our souls. First, strive to keep his commandments. There's life there. And secondly, rest in him as enough for you and all of your trials. And third, use Exodus to reflect on Jesus as your substitute to experience his refreshing and gentle reign in your life. And this is a great point to just stop and say to all of us, this is your invitation. Maybe you're watching this with us today and you've never trusted in Jesus as your sacrifice. You can put your hope in him right now. Believe and repent of trying to pay off your own debt. Believe. Trust in him. Maybe you're involved in some self-discovery right now. A journey of exploring your own identity. Which tribe you belong to. Let me just personally share that I've been on that same search. I know it's exhausting, and it's often constricting, but I've never found a more freeing, satisfying identity than to say, I am in God's family. Because of this substitution work of Jesus, God smiles and declares me his son. If you're a teenager today or a student, there's no better time than now to embrace Christ love him for who he is. However, we must all remember this. To trust Christ is to be renewed, but like the manna, Jesus must be continually sought. You must gather him each day. Like the rain, he'll come again and again, but he calls you out to dance anew each morning. It's a lifelong journey of hard toil and beautiful Sabbath rest, scorching sun, and exhilarating springs of water as we come towards the end of our exodus journey. I hope this rain imagery in the text will bolster your hope in our coming King Jesus. May we look forward during these current trials to a time when Christ returns and establishes perfect, righteous, and a just society. We read about this in Psalm 72, where the psalmist says, May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. And may all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and he saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood and his sight. Long may he live. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray, send your rain. Send your rain, oh Lord. Pour out your spirit. Soften our hearts. Fill us anew. Let your rain come. Let the power of your spirit by the work of Jesus refresh us today and let us look forward together as a church, together as a church, towards a time when you will bring in perfect refreshment and righteousness and justice and salvation in a new heavens and a new earth. And at the center of all will be King Jesus. Let us strive for that day diligently In all that we do, in Jesus' name, amen.